Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to... Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. It is spooky season again, which means that I am once again focusing on some of the most notorious women throughout history, women who are not necessarily known for the best of behavior. And I am so excited to get into it again. A couple of years ago, when Keegan was out of town, I did a series called Bad Girls. But I feel like it's more appropriate to refer to these people as notorious bitches. I feel like a lot of people see a negative connotation with the word bitch. And yes, a lot of these women would probably be called a bitch in their lifetime. But to me, it's also a very descriptive word of a person who is powerful and definitely not someone you want to fuck with. But I want to catch you all up on a few things before I get on to today's subject. For those of you who missed the mini episode this week, I did make a little announcement that there's going to be some changes and adjustments made to the Patreon page. I'm going to be putting a pause on the book club after January of 2023. And in the meantime, I'm trying to think of some other things that I could do, but I have decided that very soon I am going to be starting a sort of advice segment slash, you know, anonymous secret telling segment on the Patreon that I'm going to be calling Mad Gabin with Madigan. I am right now looking for some sort of platform to have people totally anonymously send me things so that even I don't know who's writing things in. I think that would be really interesting, really fun, and we'll see what kind of messages I receive. But there's still lots of great book club content to come. I just released the final segment of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, and I had a lot to say about that book. And I got to say, I'm, I'm glad it's done. I learned a lot, but also, you know, I'm, I'm glad to put that book away. And I'm so excited because the next book is Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. I've already started reading it and it is fantastic. It is all about women's obsession with true crime and America's obsession with true crime and why that is. And the author goes into four different perspectives of women in the crime world. And it's very, very fascinating. I'm really, really enjoying it so far. So those episodes will be up in the $5 level, the Angry Feminist Book Club level, very, very soon. If you want even more content or you just want to give a little bit more support to the show, there's also an $8 level when you can become a feminist fave. At that level, you get ad-free versions of these episodes, some random bonus content every now and again, and you get these episodes a little bit earlier than everybody else. All right, I think that's all I have to fill you in on, so let's get into the episode. The year is 2013. And I'm starting up my higher education after taking a few years off for eating disorder treatment, and I'm in a group of fellow acting students, and we're going around the room telling fun facts about ourselves. My fun fact is usually that my Auntie Anne was the inventor of the Dairy Queen Blizzard, but nothing compared to what my friend Rosaria Chen truly had to say. In her thick Italian accent, she said, 
My great-great-aunt was the first female serial killer in the world. Our jaws dropped. What? The sweet, short Rosaria with a mohawk hairdo and sweet, light voice chuckles. <laughs> yes, and she would drain her victim's blood and cut them up and turn parts of their bodies into soaps and cookies. Needless to say, no one fucked with Rosaria after this. Once, I burped around her, which is the same as offending her mother, and I thought she was about to slice my throat. Fast forward to a couple of years later, when we're all working on our final thesis projects, which was this short film that we all had to write, produce, star in, and, you know, hire all the directors and cinematographers, editors, whatever else that you needed. It was all pretty much done on our own. And Rosario went all out, and she decided to become her great-great-aunt for the film. Now, my friend is gorgeous, and her aunt, well, she looks like she's seen better days from most of the photos I've seen, but if you look closely, the resemblance is striking. She filmed it in Italy, had amazing costumes, and being the amazing actress she is, gave such a convincing and terrifying performance of her ancestor that even though I couldn't understand a word of the movie, it was all in Italian, I had goosebumps. At this time, Leonardo was pretty unknown. Podcasts hadn't become a thing, and the true crime community was much smaller and more widespread and secretive. There weren't a lot of places that we could come together and talk about these things. My interest in this was weird to many people, but now Leonardo Cinciulli is practically a household name. Now, I did my best to get a hold of Rosaria for an interview for this episode. I tried for the last two weeks, but like I said, she's a great actress. She is still working as an actress today in Italy, and with the time differences and with the rehearsal schedule that she has right now, unfortunately, we weren't able to make it work. But if I can get a hold of her eventually, I would really love to have her on the show. I also haven't really spoken with her much since... Gosh, like 2015 or 16, probably. She didn't stay in the United States for very long after we graduated from film school together and went back to Italy. So we haven't stayed in super tight communication, but we were really, really close in school. So the way that the school worked is that every couple semesters, they would mix up your classes, but you would stay with that same group of people for every single class that you did. So you had a lot of the same scene partners and you really got to know your classmates well, because typically it was a fairly small group. Like probably the largest group would have been like 15 or 16 people, if I'm remembering correctly. And when I started school up again, after having to take a little bit of a break, Rosaria was in every single one of my classes after that. And she was also one of the people that I worked with the most for scenes. And it's funny because both of us had really short hair. She had a little pixie cut mohawk, like I mentioned earlier. And I cut my hair into a pixie cut like a year after starting school up again. So both of us were constantly cast as lesbians. And I was trying to find a clip. I really thought I had this on my hard drive of this scene that she and I did together from a play called Julie Johnson. And in it... We are like two best friends that are both struggling in our marriages or relationships or whatever. And one night we end up sleeping together. And then the actual scene is the next day where she meets me in a park. So we're talking about our, you know, sexy night together, but we're having to kind of speak in code and innuendo where we're not looking at each other. But oh my gosh, I had to say some of the raunchiest things in the world. I don't know why my teachers always gave me some of the most sexually explicit <laughs> things to say, 
But it was it was a really challenging but amazing scene to work on. It was the last like stage thing that I worked on in college. And she was such a great scene partner. We worked so hard on that. And she made me feel so comfortable and safe. And I just, you know, Rosaria, if you listen to this episode, I just love you so much. You truly made my college film school experience just the best. You are so lovely. You are so talented. So now, even though the film and the trailer is in Italian, I do want to play you a little bit of it because I think it gives you the vibe, the tone, and you can hear Rosaria for yourself. I'm also going to add the link to the trailer in the show notes, and I'm going to have to ask her if she ever uploaded the full short film anywhere online because I would love to see it again. Sarebbe bello avere una famiglia con tanti bambini. Portano gioia in questa casa. Mi ricordi tanto sua mamma. Che senso? Eh, me la ricordo proprio come te che era sempre cara con la sua famiglia e i suoi figli. Basically, what they just said was that Leonardo really wants to have children to bring into the home, to bring some joy into the house. And her friend who's sitting at the table with her while she is chopping some sort of sausage, it appears, tells her that she reminds her of her mother, which then sends this horrifying face, this horrifying expression across Leonardo's face and asks, what do you mean? And the friend says, well, I always remember your mother as being such a wonderful, doting person. Mamma non ti but with all that let's talk about rosaria's great great aunt leonardo cianciulli Leonardo was born on November 14, 1893, in Montella, the province of Evelino in Italy. According to an article from the STSTW media website, Leonardo was the product of a rape in which her mother was then forced to marry her rapist, and in return she went on to despise her daughter. This sounds like such an unbelievably complicated situation because at this time, women didn't really have the right to consent to marriages in a lot of places. And I can imagine the fact that Leonardo's mother had gotten pregnant. There is a lot of pressure to marry that person who is the quote unquote father of your child, even if that person is your abuser. So I can only imagine that it wasn't just like, Leonardo's mother hated her for no reason. I think that this woman has probably persisted through a lot of trauma. And I'm also aware that because my friend exists, she had other children as well. And I'm sure it was very, very difficult. But it also doesn't, you know, excuse terrible behavior. There aren't really any examples of what their relationship looks like exactly. But it does sound like her mother was not the most pleasant of people in the world. Leonardo's father died when she was a toddler, leaving her and her mother in extreme poverty, and I'm sure that didn't help her mother's temperament much more. Her mom remarried to try to help and support herself and her daughter, which, as we know, was one of the only options for any woman at the time. But even though she married again, their financial struggles persisted. 
All of this was incredibly impactful for little Leonarda, who I'm sure didn't understand why her mother didn't love her. Girl, I understand. It's very confusing to try to understand why a parent doesn't love you. When Leonardo was a young girl, she twice attempted to take her own life. Due to having such an unhappy childhood, she turned to a fortune teller to see if her future was any brighter than her present and her past. The fortune teller told her that she would marry and have many children, but they would all die young. Leonardo would continue to be a very superstitious person for the remainder of her life. In 1914, at the age of 21, she married Raffaele Pansardi, a much older man who worked as a registry office clerk. Her parents were none too pleased, as they had already arranged for her to marry another man who was apparently quite wealthy. I bet they had a lot banking on this for them to be pulled out of their financial hardships. According to Leonardo, her mother was so angry and betrayed by what her daughter had done that she put a curse on the couple. And to some, this kind of thing would be brushed off. But to Leonardo, curses mattered. She was already told as a child that her future would be bleak, and this curse from her mother made her even more apprehensive. And there was some evidence of a curse in this marriage. The couple moved to Loria, present-day Potenza, in 1921. There, the couple also struggled financially, and Leonardo began to get pregnant. She would be pregnant a total of 17 times during her life. Three children were lost to miscarriage, and ten of her children died young, just like the fortune teller said. She had four surviving children, and she made it her life's mission to keep them safe and protected. The names of the children that I am aware of, as from the records that I found online, were Norma, Raffaele Jr., Serafina, Biagio, Bernardo, Mariano, and her favorite, Giuseppe. We know nothing is ever good when parents play favorites. It's not cute. I get asked by a lot of the kids that I take care of who my favorite child is that I've ever worked with or if they are and so on and so forth. And I can honestly tell them, I'm like, every single kid that I've loved and worked with is so different and I love them all so much. I couldn't possibly choose between them. And I feel like it's the same way for parents, where it's like each of your children are so unique in their own way. And you have your own individual experience with them that is hard to say that like one is better than the other. So for the fact that Leonardo can so confidently display that Giuseppe was her favorite, It's kind of shady, especially since she's been pregnant 17 times and has had so much hardship with her children. You'd think that all of them would be incredibly precious to her. But then again, there's really not a lot out there on her personality and about her, you know, days in and out as a mother and a wife and all of that. It's a lot of basic information. So we really have to speculate a lot about what her behavior was like. In order to start making more money, Leonardo began to dabble in some illegal transactions and was sent to jail in 1927 for fraud. I want to mention this because I think it is important to think about the motive of money when we talk about Leonardo's crimes because I don't think that's something that's discussed very often. Upon her release, the family moved once again to Lacedonia, which is in present-day Avellino, and tried to rebuild their lives once more. Unfortunately, there was a massive earthquake in 1930 that completely destroyed their home and most of the city, and the family was left on the streets. Due to all of the bad luck that has befallen her family, she visited another fortune teller. 
On this occasion, they gave her an incredibly accurate description of what her future would hold. They said, In your right hand, I see prison. In your left hand, I see a criminal asylum. After a while, the family was once again forced to move for survival purposes, and they settled in Correggio. Here, they finally found some peace of mind. Leonardo even opened up a soap shop and became known as a friendly businesswoman, a doting mother, and a poetess. She also took up her own fortune-telling business, where lovelorn women came to her for advice and answers. But still, she remained haunted by her mother's curse. She became determined to do something about it and save the lives of her remaining children. In 1939, the year of our Wizard of Oz, Leonardo's eldest son Giuseppe was enrolled in the Italian army at the wake of World War II, which of course made Leonardo's anxiety grow, and she knew she had to do something to keep her son safe and alive. She had some knowledge of black magic and the belief that the netherworld could be appropriated in order to spare a life in exchange for another. So, why not kill an unrelated person in order to save the life of her favorite child? Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Her first victim was a woman named Faustina Setti. And in pretty much every source that I found, they refer to her as a middle-aged spinster. And... I know it's not the nicest word to use, but I love that phrase. It's like, oh, what an old spinster. Like, oh, she's still looking for love. So disappointing. So terrible. Like, It's definitely a cruel word, but I, I enjoy it. So one day, Faustina came to Leonardo looking for some answers. She was waiting for the right man to come along to marry. And Leonardo told Faustina that there was a husband waiting for her in Pola, which is present-day Croatia, and that if she goes there, she'll find him. She lied and told Faustina that she would write an eligible bachelor she knew there and arrange their marriage. She told Faustina that the man had agreed to the nuptials and that she should travel to his home. She also convinced Faustina not to tell anyone of her plans to run away and elope. Leonardo hands her a piece of paper and a pen and has Faustina write a letter to her loved ones telling them that she was safe. Some sources say that Leonardo also received 30,000 lire as payment for setting her up with a husband. On the day she was supposed to leave, Faustina stopped by Leonardo's home once again for one last visit. Leonardo offered her a celebratory glass of wine, which was drugged unbeknownst to Faustina. And then suddenly, she was unconscious. So the next part of this story is a little bit graphic. So if you want to skip ahead, if you get a bit squeamish, I would say skip ahead about a minute. 
Then Leonardo took up an axe and began to cut the body into pieces, draining the blood of the victim along the way. The whole ordeal was a lot for one woman to carry out. She went into detail in court about how she went about her crimes. And I recorded myself reading this quote out loud, and it made me sick even saying it. So I'll just kind of explain little bits and pieces because it truly does add to the absolute depravity of this woman. She used parts of the bodies of the victims that she murdered and turned it into soap. And then with the coagulated blood, she dried it and added it to tea cakes, which she would then serve to her neighbors, people at her church, and even she and her son Giuseppe would enjoy these snacks. It is so fucking twisted. Her second victim was Francesca Soavi, and Francesca visited Leonardo due to a frustration over lack of employment. Leonardo promised a job at a girls' school for her in Piacenza, Just like with Faustina, Francesca was given a pen and paper to write goodbye letters to her loved ones. Then she was given a drink, and Leonardo's modus operandi was repeated. Records show again that she received about 3,000 lire from Francesca. The third and final woman who would be killed by Leonardo was Virginia Cassiopo, a 53-year-old retired opera singer who was now living in extreme poverty. Artist's life is rough. Much like with Francesca, Leonardo promised Virginia a job was waiting for her in Florence as secretary to some fictitious theater personality. Once again, Virginia wrote letters to her family, and yet again, Leonardo offered her a drink. Leonardo allegedly received 50,000 lire and assorted jewels from Virginia, the highest payment yet by far. Leonardo had some interesting details to share about the murder of Virginia as well during her trial. She talks about the sweetness of the soap that was made from her. It's just, it's so twisted. I don't understand anyone who can look at another human being or another animal, any living, breathing, moving thing, and to completely destroy it in so many ways because it's bad enough to kill someone. It's bad enough to end their lives. But to be playing with, their corpses and making things out of them and having these little like DIY projects is absolutely disgusting. I don't know if part of that was her twisted mind and the superstition, like maybe if I make it into something else, it will better keep my son protected. You know, I don't know if this person is just so unbelievably psychologically damaged that all of this just makes total sense to her because it is unthinkable when I actually think of this happening in real life because I don't know about all of you, but there's a lot of times that I hear these stories and it is so hard to imagine this actual person doing something like that. The evil that is in this world is immeasurable. But thankfully, this would be Leonardo's final victim Because what she wasn't aware of was that Virginia's sister-in-law, Albertina, who some sources describe as nosy, had actually seen Virginia at Leonardo's house and quickly became concerned and suspicious when she hadn't been seen in a while. So Albertina reported the matter to the police. It didn't take long for Leonardo to be arrested. Initially, when being interrogated, she refused to admit to any of her crimes. 
After a variety of tactics, the investigators began to verbalize to her that they suspected her eldest son, her favorite child, Giuseppe Pensardi, as the true culprit, and even arrested him as an accomplice. At the mention of her son, she realized that in order to protect him, she had to confess to what she had done and provided the authorities with very detailed accounts. Leonardo was tried for murder in Reggio Emilia in 1946. One of the most memorable moments in the trial was when she corrected the prosecutor on some of the details he had wrong in his statement. An article from the Times says, At her trial, poetess Leonardo gripped the witness stand rail with oddly delicate hands and calmly set the prosecutor right on certain details. Her deep-set dark eyes gleamed with a wild inner pride as she concluded, I gave the copper ladle, which I used to skim the fat off the kettles, to my country, which was so badly in need of metal during the last days of the war. Thank you for your patriotism, Leonardo Cianciulli. Another shocking moment that I vividly remember Rosaria describing to us was when, to prove that she was able to commit these crimes all by herself, without the help of her son Giuseppe, she demonstrated to the court that she could carry something as heavy as a dead body in order to dismember it. Reporters say there was a hint of pride in the way she recounted her crimes. She was then found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum, just as the fortune teller from her teens had suggested. What's unbelievable is that all of these heinous crimes occurred within the span of less than a year, and she was arrested very, very quickly. And maybe that's why this story wasn't super well known. Or maybe it's the fact that it's an Italian true crime story, and so much of the time us Americans are so focused on what's happening here. Unless it's Jack the Ripper, of course. But what she did was so horrific, and the story is so sensational. It's amazing to me that the only one who has made a movie about Leonardo is my friend. She died of cerebral apoplexy in the Women's Asylum in Pozzuoli on October 15, 1970. Her body was returned to her family for burial, but her murder weapons, including the pot that her victims were boiled in, were donated to the Criminology Museum in Rome, where they can still be seen today. Toward the end of my research, I came across a Medium article written by a woman named Julia Montanari, who claims to be from the same area that Leonardo killed her victims. Julia points out that the writings done by Leonardo could not have been completed solely by her, since she was almost completely illiterate, and her version of events was most likely written down by her lawyers. Julia writes, Although she was actually very superstitious, she used to read tarot cards and was regarded as something of a medium herself in Correggio, her crimes were not dictated by a desire to protect her surviving children, but by mere greed. She lured middle-aged, lonely, gullible women with promises of new, exciting jobs in big cities or future marriages with wealthy men and then proceeded to rob them of their possessions carefully dispose of their bodies, and send fake letters from all around Italy to her victims' relatives. She then sold the women's jewelry in different cities, where the items could not be recognized. Her son Giuseppe was most likely an accomplice in this and in sending the letters, even though she always vehemently denied it. In Julia's opinion, these are not the actions of an ignorant, credulous person, but of a clever, organized woman thinking coldly and clearly planning with deep forethought, and rarely making mistakes. 
What are your thoughts? Do you think Leonardo was truly cursed from the start? The unluckiest woman alive? Could she have changed her fate? Or do you think this whole thing was one big made-up story to make her seem like she was mother of the year protecting her son, doing anything in order to keep him safe, even if that meant doing the worst thing a human being could possibly do? Maybe she thought that by explaining this whole cursed situation and these superstitions that maybe she would be let off easy. Maybe she could spend more time in the criminal asylum. Maybe it was all completely made up. Two things can be true at once. She could have been a little fortune teller herself or a medium or whatever you want to call her and practiced that, but she could also know it's complete bullshit. If you were to ask me, the majority of the psychics out there are probably aware of their own bullshit. So was this story just a facade for what her true intentions were? To finally get out of the financial hardships that she's been in her entire life, to give her children something better, Maybe to make herself feel better in a bad marriage. I did hear her husband was kind of a piece of shit as well. What do you think her motive was? And unfortunately, that's all I have on Leonardo. I knew this was going to be a somewhat short episode. I really was hoping to get Rosaria on here to be able to talk more about it. But I really, really wanted to cover this story, especially because I have such a strange connection to it. I do highly recommend watching at least the trailer for Leonardo, the short film. I'm still trying to find a longer version. I don't know if Rosaria ever posted it anywhere, but definitely go and watch the trailer so you can see my amazing friend and her portrayal as her great, great aunt and show her some love. All right, all right. So if you want to join me for some more crime, horror, and gore, Join me on Patreon for the Angry Feminist Book Club for just $5 a month. This month, I am covering the book Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. I highly recommend it. It is a great, great book. I cannot wait to start digging into these chapters with you all on the book club. And if you want to support even more, you can join the $8 level and become a feminist fave. Lastly, I want to remind you all that my other show, Still Learning, is releasing new episodes every Friday. I am loving the response to these episodes. I'm so proud of the work. I'm loving everything that we've put up so far. And in the episode that is coming out this Friday, you're going to hear a lot more of me in that one as well when we interview a man named Hoyt Richards, who was actually the first male supermodel in the United States. He was a friend of Fabio's, but little did anyone know he was actually part of a cult for 20 years. His story is unbelievable. He's been 20 years out of the cult, and he and India's conversation is fantastic. He was so sweet to me and really brought me into the conversation as well and made it just such a good time. I highly recommend giving that show a listen. Definitely listen to the upcoming episode with Hoyt Richards. It's going to be fantastic. Other than that, if you enjoy the show and you think others would too, I would greatly appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. And feel free to share an episode you like with a friend. All right, everyone. I love you so much. Happy spooky season. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Welcome. You've got a digital folklore. Monsters lurk in the shadowy corners of the internet. 
our darkest fears peer back at us from the depths of the web. We can all... <coughs> hey, holy... Hey. Linda Blair. Are you all right? No. Can we maybe do this a different tone? Hey there, I'm Perry Carpenter. And I'm Mason Amadeus. On our podcast, Digital Folklore, we explore monsters, memes, and everything in between. Looking at our digital expressions through the lens of folklore, we break down the stories and communities we create online. And we try to make it a lot of fun. The show is presented in an audio drama style with a narrative and soundscape that's designed to draw you in. We weave insightful research and expert interviews with humor and storytelling. Come check it out. Search Digital Folklore wherever you get your podcasts.